Quest of Bliss, a podcast about finding light in the darkness. This episode was produced by Cappy Productions. Today's episode is brought to you by the musical stylings of After Dark. They have fantastic music. It always reminds me of pop music from the 90s in the best way. It's so comforting and wonderful. And I happen to know the artists. And they have been very supportive and are sponsoring today's show. And I couldn't appreciate them more. So go to Spotify, look up After Dark. It'll be the one that has the song Colors and Breakaway. And oh my goodness, they're just so fantastic. I'm so excited for you to hear them. So big thank you to After Dark, and here we go. Hello, and welcome back to The Conquest of Bliss. I am here with Dr. Jeremy Sherman. How are you today, Dr. Dr. Jeremy? very well. Thanks for having me on. I am so excited to talk to you today. So before we dive into anything, can you let people know a little bit about your work and your breadth of knowledge and where your research tends to go? Uh, yes. Um, so uh, I've ended up with what I'll call my middle-aged spread. I do cradle-to-grave research. That is, I'm part of a research project at UC Berkeley on the origins of life from chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then I also work on um, how synergy happens. Um, that is how, you could say, how multicellularity happens. you got single-cell organisms and you end up with these multicellularity, uh, multicellular mm. organisms. Then I work on the evolution of language and what a radical change it is to how we, um, we humans deal with reality. So uh, um, you could say that's adapting under the almost drunken influence of language. Language really <laughs> changes the adaptive process. Mm-hmm. And then I work, uh, so the cradle to grave is from origins of life to our grave situation. And a lot of been, what I've been focusing on recently is what I call psychoproctology, which okay. is trying to really get scientific about what we mean when we talk about assholes. So my big question is, how do you, I mean, I've got a variety of framing this. One is, what is a butthead, since it can't just be whoever you happen to butt heads with, <laughs> and how do you stop them without becoming one? Um, how, how do you, it, so it's basically, how do you humbly humble people who will, will say or do anything to avoid being humble? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, the, so that's my cradle to grave research program. And I, and I'm incredibly lucky. I get to work on this stuff all the time and, uh, jamming with some high level academics. I've worked now for a quarter of a century, very closely with a Harvard, neuro, uh, Berkeley neuroscientist, biological anthropologist. In fact, I just got back from a dog walk with them. We <laughs> tend to do our research meetings while walking his Bernese mountain dog these days. So, uh, so I do that maybe four or five times a week. So it, it's it's been one long conversation with uh, this guy who had written a really important book on the evolution of uh, of language, a book that made me cry when I read it before oh. I met him because not because it was moving, but just because it was over my head. I, I, <laughs> and then I ended up uh, meeting up with him. He was a really easy guy to hang out with if you were interested in the same things we were. So, uh, and he had just turned his attention to this big origins of life question, which we frame a little different from other people, which is living things try. We try to stay alive. It's a struggle for mm-hmm. existence. Non-living things don't try. Computers are not trying. Watches aren't trying. Rock stars are not trying to, uh, they're not trying. Rock stars are trying, but rocks <laughs> and stars are not trying. So the question, the, the question, and it tends to get avoided or sidestepped in science, is what is trying and how did it start? 
So, that, so that's the origins of life passion. He had just turned his attention towards it when, when I met him and got him on my PhD committee. And then we've been jamming on that and all of the things that follow from it for years. It's been a, it's been a lucky life to, I'd say dumb luck just to get to do all this stuff all the time. That's incredible. And I actually wanted to ask you a question before um, yeah. we dive into some of the details of what you've been researching, just because a lot of my listenership aren't PhDs. Um, what does that research look like for you, so is it uh, just exploring history or talking to people, or how does that look? So, it, it, so yeah, that's an interesting question that that touches on a a really interesting challenge around what we mean by science. So, we we think of science as uh, doing experiments, mm-hmm. um, but ask any scientist, I'll say, yeah, actually, there's another part to it, um, which is figuring out what experiments are worth doing. I mean, experiments or studies, they're really expensive. So uh, they take a lot of time and a lot of effort. So you've got to choose what things to test. Uh, And um, that's actually what philosophy was originally about. And science was originally called natural philosophy. Um, It's basically philosophy where you rule out the supernatural. Because I think I think of science as a campaign to find natural explanations for all natural phenomena. Mm-hmm. Um, well, who knows how the campaign will go? But we don't get to pull out these wild cards from the supernatural. I can't say, mm-hmm. well, lightning happens because there's a magical lightning thing that makes lightning happen. That doesn't <laughs> work in science. You can say that in other realms. It's a comfort to say that about what you know. It's God's will would be an example of that. Mm-hmm. But but in science, you don't do that. You borrow that. And uh, but. Mostly the work that we do is shopping as carefully as possible among interpretations. So, for example, we have a model for how trying comes out of simple chemistry, and we haven't actually tested it in the lab. My my colleague, the guy I mentioned, Terrence Deacon, he's done a whole lot of lab work. I mean, mostly in the neuroscientists, uh, neuroscientists. Like he's got a whale brain in his office and all that sort of stuff. That's Um, so cool. And and all that stuff. But so, and he teaches neuroscience and and all of that. But when it came to these questions, he's mostly looking for what we call testable hypotheses. Mm-hmm. That is, you have to you have to have something that scientists can run with and actually take to the lab and try to uh, uh, try. They can test it out empirically. They can do lab work on it. But we haven't done much of that. We mo- or actually any at all. The closest we've gotten is some computer models of it. There's a guy who uh, he designed the first VR for Sony. He got really interested in our work, so he did a computer simulation of. Um, of our origins of the life of life story, but no, we didn't get our we didn't get our hands wet with with chemicals at any point, and uh, we're basically setting up something that is testable that way. That's mostly, amazing. So it's mostly like a talking. precursor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's so cool. So before we got on uh, on air, I guess is what you would say. Recording. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, before we got on air, you were talking a little bit about the three main elements, questions that, that humans are dealing with regularly. Can you touch a little bit on that? Yeah, yeah. So um, so I started out in the social sciences. I know, actually, let me, let me be clear about this. I started out as a hippie trying to save the world. So my, <laughs> my first whole career was in activism, and my very first move in that career was to join the world's largest hippie commune, oh. a place called The Farm in Tennessee. And I was there for seven years, 
and loved it. It was 1,400 people. They're still my buddies. I learned a lot there. It was a kind of a love is the answer. We are all one kumbaya <laughs> kind of a place. But it was a, but it was not sloppy about it. We were, um, they called us the Technicolor Amish because we wore a lot of tie-dyes. But we were also, um, the rule there, I mean, I was celibate from 20 to 23 because the rule there was you couldn't have sex unless you were engaged to be married. Oh, uh, wow. No, it was really an unusual commune. And 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 uh, cannabis was our, our sacrament, but we did no alcohol. There were all sorts of tribal ways that were interesting and peculiar there. Uh, out of that, I, I founded a national lobbying organization on climate change. And then I had a nice, juicy midlife crisis where I started <laughs> to realize that what was going on, the, the, my activism wasn't yielding the kinds of effects I was hoping for. I kind of mm -hmm. sobered up. And I did it in a funny in a funny way. So after the after starting that nonprofit, I ended up doing a um, uh, uh, a master's in public. Uh, no, actually, I went to work for a bunch of green corporations. So I worked for Ben and Jerry's and the Body Shop and all these companies doing public affairs kind of things. Okay. Then I got a master's in public policy, and that's when the the midlife crisis hit. And I was sobered up, and I was thinking, I'm not making change fast enough in can this I, world. Can I ask um, you? Can I ask? Can I, sure. I guess? Can I guess? Yeah. So was your realization crisis around the idea that we kind of have to start, you know, with individuals? Yeah, yeah. No, in a way I was, um, yeah, I was sobered up. I was doing all this policy stuff at a high level and I was saying, wait, the problem isn't technical. It isn't even political. It's the wetware. What are humans and what's going on with us and how did we end up like this? And I got really interested first in evolutionary psychology then in a field called complexity theory. And that's around the time I met this guy, Terrence Deacon, um, who I think was homing in on the questions better than I had seen it before. But I, but I was really, I, the evolutionary theory got me really going. Mm -hmm. um, and so in evolutionary theory, we're explaining how by trial and error over time, uh, across generations, you see organisms responding in ways that fit their circumstances. Mm -hmm. So it's about adaptation. And what we're talking about is adaptive responses. And they're different in different circumstances. So this is around the time I was sobering up on the idea that, you know, we are uh, we should all just decide to do this one thing. No, apparently there's a lot of different ways to live in this world. <laughs> and a lot of them are viable. Um, uh, it, whatever works is basically the law in evolutionary theory. Whatever enables one to succeed in one's uh, struggle for existence. That what's that's what tends to prevail, that's but so but out of that, so so in the meantime, I, you know, I kind of thought that I'd set aside the activism, but I think it was always driving me in the background, trying to figure out how to, uh, basically, I stopped the I relaxed the advocacy long enough to to engage in some analysis. Basically, there's a, and there's even a Buddhist line about this: that truth waits for eyes unclouded by longing. Oh. And, and I and that. and I think that's what science is about. It's basically saying to get what you want. If you're in pursuit of bliss, for example, <laughs> set aside what you want long enough to see what is, and then better informed, you'll be better able to get the bliss. Yeah. So that's about that's kind of a change that came over me at this time, and part of that was hanging out with this um, this Harvard neuroscientist who had, who, I, as luck would have it, moved to Berkeley around the time that um, our PhD, my PhD was done with him. He's incredibly neutral. 
That is, he's not busy looking at the theories and saying, oh, this is bad news. This is good news. Um, no, he, he's just trying to understand what's going on with us. And that became very contagious for me, um, which was unusual because I'd been kind of melodramatic. I grew up in Mill Valley, California, where, you know, where feelings were truth. And the more you, you know, the more <laughs> strong you felt something, uh, the more true it was. And no, in a way, so, so I'm hanging out suddenly with these nerds. Um, who got all the same questions as me. Their hearts are on fire, but uh, another Buddhist saying, their hearts are on fire, but their eyes are cold as ashes. Um, and I like that. Uh, that that contrast, that interest, that, mm -hmm. that interests me. A kind of detachment by which to pursue what you're attached to. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So no, the idea of total detachment, nah, I, I'll do that when I'm dead, okay? <laughs> but in the meantime, I got plenty of goals. Uh, I'm trying to achieve many things, but to do that, I have to, I have to be able to turn off my, uh, my, my goals long enough to observe where I am. So that that's part of it. And where, where the three things I was talking about before we started talking are these. So I end up, I end up having an explanation for who I am that is grounded in a whole story of how, from physical chemistry. <laughs> motivation comes into uh, into kicks in you could say or emerges would be the technical word uh, how language changes us um, how we would be tempted as a result of having language to become assholes that's the psychoproctology side of the work <laughs> but also just to understand the human condition in that context not from some sacred text not from some uh, intuitions that came out of philosophy it's actually a physical science approach to those questions and one thing i notice about it is that i or you or anyone is actually um trying to stay fitted in three different big realms mm -hmm. so one is the one that all organisms have had to deal with which is they have to fit reality yeah. As if you fall off a cliff, you're dead, right? Okay, so so we're all having to fit that, and reality will debate what reality contains, but we <laughs> don't really debate much about the container. The container that we call reality is everything, all the threats and opportunities that would make a difference to your struggle for existence. It's a very mm -hmm. pragmatic definition of reality. So, but there, but there, nonetheless, there are those things out there that doesn't matter what anyone's opinion about them are, is. It's they're, they'll fuck you up if you, yeah. if you ignore them. If you miss these yeah. opportunities, like, or you avoid, uh, or you uh, you walk straight into these threats. Mm -hmm, so there's that realm, um, and I call that the 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 realm of the likely. Mm -hmm. That is physically likely. But then it's, there's also the social realm, which I call the light. That is what's socially liked around you. And then there's the third realm, which I'll call the likable, which is anything that gives you comfort in your skin. Anything from alleviating anxiety to giving you the conquest of bliss, that all is about our adapting to our own emotional internal situation. So those are interesting three realms that come out of this research. This end up with those mm -hmm. three realms. Well, and it's really funny um, when you're talking about reality and, you know, the container, because like, I agree, nobody's going to disagree that if you jump off a cliff without a bungee cord, you know, you're going to get hurt. But then reality sort of, from my understanding, and of course, um, you're the one who's been researching it, but um, from my understanding, you know, that also kind of plays into that likability piece. You know, there's some parts of reality that are very much determined by our perception. And it gets it gets so interestingly interlinked those three topics. Yes. So so one element of reality is that we um, that there's a social realm. So this is I mean this is uh, 
this is an interesting paradox. So a lot of our work is on recursion, which is basically you fold something back into itself mm-hmm. and it usually raises a dilemma. So to, to, to take an example, like you shouldn't be judgmental. It's actually a judgment. Mm-hmm. Do not be <laughs> negative is in fact negative. So those kinds of folding back things back into themselves are pretty fundamental in our work. And an example of that would be, you've got to be realistic. And that includes that you have to be realistic about how unrealistic humans are. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, so, so yes, it is, you could say it's a cluster fuck, but there's some interesting things to be found by looking at the ways in which these interact. Now, now there are schools of thought and they, uh, they rise often and they'll rise on the right and they'll rise on the left. Um, uh, that basically, the, the original version of this is German idealism. Uh, it's, a, it, it's, uh, it's a reading of Kant, the, the philosopher Kant, that, um, that basically takes it all out to the realm where, uh, uh, where you'd get the secret. I don't know if you remember the secret from yeah. a few years ago. Manifestation, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. And then before that, you got Est. Um, I actually think of the rise and fall of these things as like 17-year locusts. That is, people buy into the idea that that there is no reality, it's only what you make it, um, and it rises for a while and it doesn't quite work because <laughs> it's not realistic. Um, I mean, I think of myself as somnipotent. I have some power. <laughs> my, my beliefs certainly have an influence on what happens. But no, the claim that I that I can that I'm omnipotent that whatever I choose to believe is true um, is actually interesting. How that's how that's manifest now. Where is that? Where do we mostly see that in the asshole right wing fascist cult that is not conservative but just has taken over recently? They are definitely supporters of the secret. They mm-hmm. they may have a different branding for it, but it's to me it's the same bullshit. Uh where I mean there's a there's a fabulous wrote uh, uh Carl Rove quote about it. Um this pure secret. Uh let me let me just read it to you since it's Okay, it's, perfect. Um this is this is him this is Carl Rove. This is before Bush and he says, "We are an empire now and when we act we create our own reality and when you're studying that reality judiciously as you will, we'll act again creating other new realities which you can study too and that's how things will sort out." <laughs> so that's pure that's pure secret. That's and 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 it's also exactly what the Trump cult is doing. Um and I say that look I'd say the same thing if Trump was pandering to the left. It's got nothing to do with what these guys claim claim to believe. Mm-hmm. That it's it's the simply the idea that I rule reality, reality doesn't rule me. Yeah. And and so I'm saying it's somewhere in between there. Yes, we can manifest things, but mostly when we uh, are inspired to do something that motivates us to make some effort in that direction. It ain't magic; it's effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, it's so that, a, yeah. So that's my take on it, and it's just my take. I'm not saying I'm not cl- I'm not claiming to correct anybody about it. It's just I, I've thought about this a lot. I've, um, <laughs> but I could be wrong. You know. It's, well, it's funny because actually my um, thought process has has sort of leaned a lot more toward what you're talking about, and especially like when you said taking things that appear to be supernatural and finding natural reasons for them. Um, and, and manifestation, it's funny you're talking specifically about manifestation because that's one area where I really kind of see the, the silliness of the mysticism around it. 
because, or at least I, I feel that it's silly because like, I mean, the, the, the positive results that we do get from manifestation, like as people, because there are sometimes positive results. I think that that is very much answered by sort of just changing the filters of what we're looking for, sort of like the frequency illusion. You know, you buy a red car, suddenly you see red cars everywhere. Well, you tell your brain to look for opportunity, it's yeah. going to see opportunity. But of course, people extend that to be things beyond what's actually in their control, right? So, you know, I, I'm like, I'm going to manifest a lottery win. Well, of course, I can't manifest a lottery win. I can manifest opportunities to make money but I can't manifest the lottery win in the way that it's said, or at least that's my understanding. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so I, I do a lot of studying of religion and spirituality, by the way, I don't end up seeing that big a difference between them. Yes. I understand that uh, the spiritual reject the idea of a God with a white beard, but if you're talking about a higher power, you're still talking about the universe wanting certain things that you can align with. And that, and so, so to me, they're similar, but what, what I'm reading them for is, uh, and studying them for, and I've taught, I've taught religious studies and all that is, um, what it says about human appetites, what it says about human nature, that we would gravitate towards these stories, um, uh, towards these ideas of basically having the power to influence things in alignment with some uh, pure virtue, something like a god or a higher power or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so it's more... A psychological study, it's like a Rorschach blot. That is, mm -hmm. you look at all the religions and you or, and spiritualities and you see what humans want. Mm -hmm. And I'll go farther than that. I would say further than that. I would say that uh, any organism that had language anywhere in the universe uh, would have religions and spiritualities like ours. Oh, you know what's interesting? I just read a study. I'm, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I only read the first part of it, but it said that elephants. They've been they've been noting uh, spiritual practices in elephants, moon worship. And that makes sense because they're intelligent and communicate. Uh, yes, I'm. I think I'm probably talking about something a little different from that because while they, while elephants have extraordinary uh, uh, knowledge, and I'd go so far as to say wisdom, they don't quite have the, they don't have language the way we do. That mm -hmm. is, for example, I can imagine an elephant sitting on top of a uh, a gumball, uh, spinning the universe on the tip of its trunk. Mm -hmm. I don't think an while wearing a pink tutu, but I don't <laughs> think an elephant can do that kind of imagination. Fair enough. Because Fair I think enough. they don't have the they don't have they they're not what we'd call symbol competent. They don't but have the the language to to use creativity. Yeah, language gives us a whole other realm that other organisms don't. Basically, we can it's basically you could talk about it as our imagination. There's plenty of creativity in other organisms, but there's a we can we basically live in two worlds, the world of, you know, the, the, the real world that we encounter in everyday life and also the world of our imaginations where I can think anything real or imaginary. I can think about the future in ways that other organisms are not likely to. And this is, once again, this is about the power of neutral thinking. I don't actually care. I'd be happy if, <laughs> or, if elephants uh, had a spiritual practice. I'm, not, I'm indifferent to the, to the conclusion. I'm only trying to understand what the, the difference is what we're talking about. But mm -hmm. when we talk about intelligent life, extraterrestrial intelligent life, we're talking about life we could communicate with in language. Yeah. Um, and, that, and I'm saying that the potential for... Um, so it, to me, language generates, um, 
If you compare what you could worry about at night to what a dog could worry about at night, it's just overwhelming what a human could consider all the missed opportunities, all the ideals, all the past, all the future. A dog has worries, and, mm -hmm. and some of them are emotional, and some of them may have some kind of imagery with them, but it ain't the same as humans. We, mm -hmm. You know, you, you could go on, if you were insomniac at 2 a.m. and you went online, you could find lots of things to think about. <laughs> so yeah. what I want to say is that humans are an uncommonly anxious species, Mm -hmm. And we are also uncommonly good at dreaming away our dread. That is, we can engage in escapism like no other organism. And that combination would make it so. So if you think about all organisms, what we're trying to do is uh, be safe mm -hmm. and also free to follow our impulses. That would be things that any organism would want. And so the idea of reaching, of actually conquesting bliss as if you've arrived at a plateau where you can stay in bliss all the time, whether you manifest this in terms of thinking about heaven or, uh, you know, where you're in eternal bliss forever, which is a hard thing to imagine because bliss is actually about surprise. I mean, uh, it's a, so to be delighted over and over and surprised by <laughs> some uptick in your advantage for eternity would take a whole lot of ice cream. <laughs> they can't have to keep on piling it on in some way. Wow, yesterday I got 3,000 scoops. Today I got 3,001. I mean, <laughs> so it, that's it. But, but what I want to say in great honor of that is that would be an appetite in all, all, all of us. The idea of arriving at a perfect plateau of perfect safety and perfect freedom would be a human appetite that would be easy to appeal to by saying, look, Here's some evidence that someone manifested something. Therefore, we now have a universal rule that you can manifest anything <laughs> all the time. You are perfectly safe and perfectly free. And no wonder that 17th year locus of an idea pops up every few years because the hope is eternal in us. We would love that. Yes. <laughs> it's like, but it's like playing God, it's, you know? <laughs> I love that you commented on the uh, the name of the show because honestly, like that's, a lot of people don't comment on it. And that's one of the reasons that I chose it is because it's kind of a paradox, you know, that to conquer the idea of right. bliss. I'm glad to hear that you see that. Moving. Yeah. yeah. And actually the irony is the heart of uh, my response to the world. I have come to assume we have based on this research. That is irony. That is an, a line like that. Um, uh, my dad had, let's see, no, let's see. Here are some examples. My dad had one. He said, uh, I haven't lived my life in vain for nothing. Um, <laughs> um, I say, no matter how hard I chase the truth, it will never catch me. Um, <laughs> and, and a lot. So basically, that's that same stuff I was talking about recursion, where you fold something back in on itself. You shouldn't be judgmental being a judgment. An ironist is someone who recognizes that, that stuff, sees the poignancy in it finds joy, actually finds bliss in recognizing <laughs> that's what we're stuck with, and then um, doesn't dismiss it, isn't frivolous about it, doesn't say, well, it's not actually contradictory, nor do they say, yeah, it's contradictory, which means that morality and what people should do is all bullshit. No, these are people, when you're an ironist, you say, ah, I see a challenge. So you look at this thing like, I shouldn't be you shouldn't be judgmental, and they say, ah, that's self-contradictory. That means I will spend the rest of my life trying to figure out when to judge and when not to judge. Mm -hmm. You know, be intolerant of intolerance. 
Some people say, see, that's bogus because it's, it's, it's hypocritical. <laughs> so I can be a hypocrite too because it's bogus. But what I say is, no, it raises this lifelong question. What should I tolerate? What should I not tolerate? Exactly. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, uh, I, and I love, I love, uh, I love irony in general and paradoxes. I find that, like you're mentioning, I mean, so often we, as humans, we're so, I don't know what the word is, but like, like solid. We like, we like to feel like things are, we have hard answers for everything. Yeah. And I love how often there'll be something that's completely, you know, ironic where it doesn't quite fit. And I feel like the lesson is, is in that, that nuance, that flex, that, Exactly. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. What I've, what I've come to call either inversatility or vice versatility. That is to be able to see things, the versatility to flip things around. And, and I, and I want to say, so what you just described is actually, I think, born out in physics. Um, as simple as this, there are reversals in physics, things going one way, and then they end up going another way. A simple mm -hmm. example would be a whirlpool. Turbulence is a, is a response of too much water trying to get through uh, a passageway. Yeah. Um, but in it's also a representation of a tendency for everything to move towards disorder. So what is a whirlpool? It's a spontaneous tendency to generate local order that dissipates the, uh, that, that passes through the disorder more efficiently. As a whirlpool is, is a, reversal of the tendency everything's moving towards uh disorder mm -hmm. and you get the spontaneous tendency towards order okay so if there are reversals in physics then and and we are organisms who are trying to track physics mm -hmm. that means that our responses will sometimes that our responses in so, in one situation will the the responses that work in one situation cause problems in other situations. Mm -hmm. um, that's just kind of fundamental to all life. And I would say that's the big cosmic wedgie that you get <laughs> from Darwin. The cosmic wedgie is not that we descended from apes or that uh, there's a diminished role for God or a higher power. It's that there are no formulas that work reliably everywhere. Yeah. So then, so that means... So, so that's why I end up being the technical term for it is a fallibilist. A fallibilist is someone who knows that they're guessing <laughs> what to do, yeah. that there's no escaping guessing. So my motto as a fallibilist is no matter how confident I am in a bet, I'm still more confident that it is a bet. <laughs> um, so, and I've gotten great relief. In fact, I've gotten bliss out of that because now I don't have to hold myself to some perfect standard and beat myself up. If I fuck up, I adjust, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm busy thinking all the time about, am I being too assertive here or not assertive enough? My peace of mind, my bliss comes from actually worrying equally on opposite sides of that. Like I'm right, <laughs> like I'm driving a winding road and I want to avoid both errors. And that's, um, and so that's been, that's been peace of mind, but it also is born from an understanding. We're trying to track winding forking roads and, um, uh, the idea that you should, the formula is always to steer to one side or the other is just absurd. It's, it's not going to work. You and can't I just turn the, can't just crank the, the, wheel, the steering wheel all the way to the right and think that you're going to survive these winding roads. They change. <laughs> well, and I love that, uh, I, I love that, 
the, oh, okay, sorry, I lost my train of thought for just a second. Um, no problem. I, I love I love what you were saying about how much freedom it gives you that that fallibility, and and it's interesting because I have not done as much. Well, I've done different different studying in a much less formal uh, setting, and I've come to the same conclusion: is there's just a lot of freedom in letting go of the idea that I'm right, and understanding that at any given time I could be doing the absolute wrong thing, and Honestly, the consequences aren't aren't as dire, you know, as like we have this tendency. I have this tendency to think that if I get something, or I had, I guess, this tendency to think if I get something wrong, that it's going to be world crashing. But if anything, when I'm wrong, that actually gives me a lot more information than when I'm right. Yes. Yeah, so, so I uh, I would frame this as I'm um, I identify with learning, not being learned, learned. That yeah. is. Um, so I can stand corrected with my dignity intact. It's actually evidence of a certain kind of learning. At the same time, I don't want to downplay. Uh, there is, a, you know, there, I'm old enough that I remember a pop psych book, "Don't Sweat the Small Stuff," and it's all small, small stuff. Oh, I I read that too when I was a kid. Yeah. Well, what I'm saying is, yeah, it's all small stuff if you define the big stuff as small. Um, just <laughs> like it's all good if you def- if you define good broadly enough to include bad. Mm-hmm. No, it it really this shit matters. It really matters. And yet, I so I really want to be, I want to get it right. And yet, I have to, what you, everything else you just said fits perfectly with what I'm saying. So it's not like it doesn't matter. But I do think that there's something to be said for minimizing how much it matters. So here's an example from recent life for me. I used to think I needed status, um, but I actually am financially secure. And so I don't end up needing status. Mm-hmm. That is, if you you need status, if you're gonna if you're gonna leverage your hours in the day and make a lot of money, um, uh, so that you can uh, you know so you can have freedom and safety, which is one of the things that money will buy you. But but if you don't need money, you actually don't need status. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you may think you need it because everybody thinks they need it, but actually you don't. And maybe I could trade some status for. Uh, you could say honesty and and care in trying to figure out what's right. So, um, so there are ways in which you can. I think we should be. I think it's you can buy freedom and safety by minimizing or prioritizing what matters to you. But mm-hmm. I don't think I, I would never want to get to the place where I'm thinking, yeah, it's all good. Um, no, it's not. Uh, there's a difference between good and bad. I'm trying to figure out what it is, um, <laughs> and I'm it, it's and it's a lifelong process. And uh, but I yes, I I want to care. Uh, I want I want triage in what I care about. I want to minimize my trivial cares and um and focus on the ones that um that I that I end up thinking or betting matter. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and just just to clarify, when I said it doesn't matter, I certainly. I, I'm not. I'm not a nihilist, um, where nothing matters yeah. or has value. Yeah. But it's more like it doesn't really matter if I'm the one who's right. Amen. And actually, I, I want to be. I want to be clear too. I, I think I knew that that's what you meant by it. I just <laughs> wanted to make make a distinction because there's a way in which people can take that the next step. I didn't hear you taking that next step. The take okay. the next step is towards a kind of a nihilism or fatalism or postmodern. Um, 
uh, don't give a fuckism, whatever. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> I, um, I, I, yeah, so actually I'm hearing plenty of resonance between our interpretations of what's going on here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, like I just, uh, like I said, wanted to make sure, but I understand I'm also that way where I'm like, just to be very, very clear, because it's amazing how um, that, I don't even know what the right word is, but that bias, that confirmation bias can just kick in if you hear something that's almost what you feel. <laughs> Right. And, and, and that's actually a fundamental feature of language. Language is, is, is incredibly squirrely. In fact, it's called in semiotics or linguistics, it's called promiscuous. <laughs> words sleep around with different meanings. Yes, they And do. no, I'm not saying that it gets jiggy. Obviously, we know that what we're talking about when we talk about words as promiscuous is not the sexual feature of promiscuous, but the... Um, uh, Flexibility and ability to adapt yeah, that's to right. what people and, want. Yeah, so so the idea that w we might think that with language we get more precision, and yeah, we can get some more precision if we want, let's say, in law or in physics or something like that. But for the most part, it has opened uh, a can of cluster flux uh, where it's so a lot of what I end up doing, you, you, try this out. Imagine this work where I'm trying to figure, I'm trying to keep us cornered with the question, what is trying and how did it start? So the title of my book that came out with Columbia University Press is Neither Ghost Nor Machine, which is I'm saying, you know, we're not going to assume that trying doesn't exist because I'm just a machine, nor am I going to allow some supernatural ghost to explain it like vital force entered me or, you know, spiritual energy or even there are some scientific equivalents of that. So what I'm doing is I'm basically trying to walk a tightrope between two ways that people will naturally fall. They'll mm -hmm. naturally fall into talking about us as though we're just chemical machines uh, or as though there's some kind of magic element in that. So a lot of what I end up doing in my writing is this business where you are uh, you could say it, it's called disambiguation, right? Mm -hmm. In Wikipedia. That is, I know you might think that I'm saying it, that this thing that is similar to this thing that you might want to believe because you already believe it or whatever. But no, I'm actually trying to get, uh, I'm, I'm blocking that. I'm blocking that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's basically 20 questions. And more and more we're seeing that that's, what, that's how to think about language. It doesn't pinpoint, it narrows. So mm -hmm. a conversation could start anywhere. And as you start talking, it funnels us into a narrowing. Mm -hmm. And honestly, that's, <laughs> this is a little bit off topic, but that's one of my, well, maybe it's completely on topic actually, but it's one of my favorite things about language. Cause I'm also like very nerdy about, like, I don't know many languages, but I like to study like the function of language. Um, right. And, and that's one of my favorite things is that like, I just think it's so interesting how two people can have the same the same conversation in the sense that they're both there and participating. Yes. And so often, sometimes in big ways, but more often in little ways, they'll walk away remembering a different conversation, having taken something different from that yes. conversation. Yes. That, uh, yes. Uh, and um, yeah, I happen to collect and memorize poems on that subject. <laughs> um, so there's a great one to look up sometimes called the White Knight Song, which is all about that. Um, uh, it's Lewis Carroll. And then Ooh. Shakespeare has a great sonnet about it in love that starts with, when my love says she is made of truth, I do believe her, though I know she lies. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess the the next question I would have is, so you've, uh, you've been studying this for a long time and we now know kind of what led you there. 
Um, you know, how how does this information apply for, for people? Like, is there a way that it applies? Um, is there any big uh, strides that you guys have made in understanding this, this, this dichotomy of social lives and reality and internal lives? Uh, right. Um, so... So all, I should say, I, I happen to be an atheist, though just this week I bought um, a Fiddler on the Roof cap to just compliment the look, because I end up, I'm, I'm really Jewish looking. So, <laughs> so now I got that look. But my kids are, you know, the, the only Jewish education they got was Jewish joke books. I'm not, I don't actually, I'm not fond of the religion. It's, it's I, I mean, it, it's fine, knock yourself out, but... There's only one God. He likes us best, and you can't join us, a little tacky. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but anyway, um, but um, I do feel as though this work is my non-spiritual spiritual path. Mm-hmm. That is, I unlike a lot of academics I work with, I actually, I actually assume this is. I mean, whatever I whatever I'm philosophizing about, I'm not just philosophizing. I'm actually putting it into practice. So uh, everything we talked about, and I just gave an example of, about the relief that comes from embracing fallibilism and dropping the fake infallibility of thinking I've got the formula. Um, any 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 assault on my um, formula is an assault on me, and I have to defend it because I can't afford to be humbled. Mm-hmm. Um, the, so, so I gotta just say, in my life, the best relief I've gotten is this embrace of fallibilism. No matter how confident I am in a bet, I'm still more confident that it is a bet, mm-hmm. and my bets can change as a result. But on this thing that you were the, on the the other one, just I am uh, the the idea that we are adapting in three realms, which I call the likely, which is the is physical reality, the the liked, which is social um, social standards, and the likable, which is to feel comfort or bliss in my own skin. Mm-hmm. So the tension between them is really interesting. In the long run, the one that matters most is the likely story. That is, we have to adapt to reality, the physical reality, or we die. So climate change is a real problem, okay? In the short run, what feels most important to us is uh, the, the, um, the immediate conquest of bliss, Mm-hmm. That is a sense that we are not, uh, that, I mean, no one likes to be uncomfortable for long. We may pretend that we're interested in what's true, fat chance. Not when your body's riding on it. Not when you could get news from some challenge to your assumptions. That's the equivalent of finding out you got to do a $10,000 repair on the foundation of your house. That you didn't, you don't have the money for it. You don't have the, you don't have the energy for it. So it's really disappointing to our souls when we're challenged. And that feels most pressing to us. And in between is the social realm. So think about it this way. The social realm can give you reality checks or it can pander to your need for comfort in your own skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of this, this ambiguous intermediary between the pursuit of what's really what's real and the pursuit of comfort in our own skin. Um, it's ambiguous that way. Uh, and that's really that's really beautiful and it I mean it echoes a lot of information that's come in lately with you know uh like the importance of the social element yeah though it, I want to say that the the social yeah so uh, <laughs> we all need community to some extent um uh different extents for different people i I have for the most part I'm 65 so I've 
I've retired from the sex, love, romance uh, commitment. I, I'm <laughs> glad that my lack of appetite finally caught up with my lack of aptitude. I'm, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not really designed for that kind of. I'm too mouthy at close range. I'm just. I'm, um, uh, yeah, I, you know, women are charmed by me at first because I can name more than two emotions, but I'm ultimately <laughs> oppressive because I think and talk too much. So, um, so I'm best at, at, at a distance. Uh, uh, podcast interviews are probably a, a good use of me. Um, but, uh, but yes, there is there is something to the social element, but we also notice. So check this out. I talk to a fair number of uh, spiritual people. I live in Berkeley, and that's what you mostly get around here is spiritual, not religious. So the other day at a block party, I'm hanging out with um, a neighbor who's a computer programmer, and he says he tells me that uh, 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 he was uh, he was his father was a minister, and that he had this guy had rejected religion because he um, uh, it felt. It didn't feel right, but now he's spiritual. He believes in a higher power. And I said, okay, what does the higher power want? And he says, he wants love. So it's rooting for love, okay? okay? So what is love? He says, well, it's connection. And I I posed this to him. I said, um, yeah, I think connection isn't, it, it wants good connection, not bad connection. Would you agree? And he says, well, I'm going to have to think about that. Um uh, that is, if that is, there's plenty of connection that's really bad. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of cultures that we call them cults that are really bad. They could really do us in. Um, the idea of you know connection or the love between uh, uh, slave owners um, or between Nazis. No, I don't think that love is the answer. <laughs> I think it's the question. We're trying to figure out what to love and what not to love. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, while we're talking. His daughter is there trying to interrupt and get our attention. And while he's espousing the virtues of love and connection, he is also saying to his daughter, wrong connection in the moment. Um, uh, we're Sorry, we're busy connecting here. So that means I'm not available to connect to you. I mean, love takes effort. Attention, connection takes effort. So no, you can't, you can't say I'm going to connect with everything. That's absurd. Mm-hmm. So, um, so which community, which happinesses, which aspects of reality, it's a pro- you got to do triage. You, you can't afford to do just to simply the sweeping claim that love is the answer or the connection is the answer doesn't quite work. And not only that, the guy's a computer programmer. What is computer programming about? It's about making the right connections, mm-hmm. not the wrong ones. Yeah. You could not, you know, it's like this saying, uh, I want to keep an open mind, but I don't want my brains to spill out. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, this is okay. So um, I'm just looking at the time before uh, yes, before yes. we go on to our super fun game. Can you tell people where they can find more of this? This has been fantastic. You're hilarious. I'm, I'm delighted <laughs> delighted to hear. So um, you can find first of all, you could just Google my name and you'll find way too much of me. Um, <laughs> and you also because like I've written a thousand articles for Psychology Today under the name Ambigamy Insights oh. for the Deeply Romantic and Deeply Skeptical. Um, but but also I now have I'm building a website and it's and the the heart of it is done. It's at jeremysherman.com, and there you'll find my uh, my eight big questions. And if you go to the media page, you'll find I've got three podcasts. One is one where I just debate myself, 
Another is a term of the debate, term of the day one. And then the other one is this new book I just put out, which is called What's Up With Assholes? Advanced Psychoproctology for Beginners. Um, and so that's me just reading the whole book for free as a podcast or pod class. Um, so you'll find that all just by going on the internet. And the other thing is I'm really active on Facebook. It turns out that I write these mini micro essays in the form of memes. So <laughs> there, I'm on Instagram and Facebook, but Facebook is, it, you. it's a good place if you like this kind of stuff, these little, you know, it's, it's, the head of psychology, uh, psychology Today describes me as mind candy for people who aren't afraid to think. <laughs> so if you're so if you're into that kind of stuff, uh, come be my friend. That's <laughs> I need friends. No, I don't. I'm doing fine, but I, I would love. I, I would love. I welcome anybody who finds any of this stuff intriguing. <laughs> oh, it's so intriguing. Okay, uh, I feel like I could talk to you for hours, but we we don't. But have we have that. a game to play. We have matters yes. of consequence to deal. <laughs> All right, so you are going to be guessing 1920s slang from yes. scarymommy.com. So obviously a super reliable source. Oh, there um, we go. <laughs> and uh, we'll just get started. So what is an alderman? Oh, geez. I mean, I know what an alderman is in, um, in an alderman is a, like a precinct boss in the technical term. Now, what if it became slang, it must mean something else. And actually, I play a lot of jazz. I'm a jazz bass player, vocalist. And I even can find it in one of the tunes, but I'm trying to remember. I give up. The it's a man's is, pot belly. Oh, that is fabulous. Alderman? Alderman. Is a man with a pot belly or is his... Is it, is, it is, is his it, pot belly. It is the pot belly oh, belonging thank you. to the no, man. No, I love that one. That's fabulous. <laughs> That's fabulous. All right. Okay, do oh. I get another one? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what is a bean shooter? Is it a bean shooter? Is it a gun? It is a gun. It is a gun. Oh, oh. Give me another one. I want to. I, I want to. <laughs> All right. What's a Bruno? Oh shoot. Uh, is it a handsome guy? Uh, no, it's. Uh, I can see why you think that though. Bruno Mars is definitely handsome. Um, it's a uh, tough guy, an enforcer. A Bruno, like a brute. Yeah. Like a brutal. Like he's okay, not Bruno. Just... <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, what is a clean sneak? Um, uh, I'm drawing a blank. I mean, I can, I'll make a guess. Um, a clean sneak. Uh, it's a pickpocket. Uh, no, but it's the same kind of uh, realm. It's an escape with no clues left behind. So if I went and broke into your house and you couldn't figure out who it was, it was a clean sneak. Oh, this is fabulous. No, I, I, I apparently have to bone up. I've been re-watching Boardwalk Empire, which is why I said the 1920s. <laughs> um, I end up watching, in the evening, I end up mainlining human nature, concentrate <laughs> in the form of these extended uh uh, extended play uh, series and I have seen Boardwalk Empire before and I thought it was exquisite and I feel almost guilty for watching reruns but then I thought wait a second for most of human history reruns were the big deal for example in the, the Jewish faith 
They mm-hmm. read the whole Old Testament every year. That's the point. They start the thing over again every year. So apparently reruns are a part of human nature. So I get to watch uh, uh, Boardwalk Empire a second time. Um, <laughs> I love that you found a way to justify it, even though it wasn't uh, something that needed justifying. <laughs> no, no, no. My, my, my biggest prayer is God grant me one good reason for what I want to do. And, and this, the God of rationalizations, he always provides. <laughs> Okay. Um, what is, uh, oh, I'm just going to quickly say I do no, the yeah. same thing, but I do it on Reddit. So Reddit's anonymous. And I just like read so much, like, like, am I the asshole and like interpersonal yes. conflict. And I just, I swear to God, I'm same thing, mainlining human behavior. Um, yeah, that's brilliant. I, I, my daughter and her fiance strongly urged me to get off of Facebook and onto Reddit where they think the conversation is better. I've made a few dives at it. I even set up a psychoproctology page. Um, I, I sh- of course, I love self-aware wolves. Um, mm-hmm. uh, for, but, but I no, I, it's 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 on my to-do list. Mm-hmm. As is the next slave slang term you have for me? What's the? What, do duck you have one soup. more? What is duck soup? We're gonna do two more. Oh, that's uh, uh, that's trouble. No, it's it's actually easy. A piece of cake. Oh gosh, pitiful. Um, no duck soup. So duck soup is obviously you know that's a, the name of a, a Marx Brothers movie. Oh, I didn't know that. Have you spent any time with the uh, the Marx Brothers youngster? I haven't. Uh, I haven't seen any of those movies. I'm honestly like the worst with pop culture. I, I struggle. Um, my Duck attention soup. just yeah, doesn't. Yeah, no, I'm I'm failing this thing miserably. Uh, I wasn't born yesterday, apparently. Okay, uh, well, I'll give nothing. you I'll give you an easy one. There's no way you don't. Well, I shouldn't say that because if you don't know what, I'm gonna feel <laughs> no, really bad. <laughs> but what's a grifter? A grifter? Yeah. A con artist. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Boom! Yeah. Two out of five. That's actually better than uh, better than most. Well, it's it's still pitiful, and um, and I'm going to be filled with remorse for the rest of the day. Uh, it's <laughs> funny to me how many of the names we have for assholes actually come from the 1920s. Um, they sound uh, quaint, grifter. Um, uh, uh, I mean, it's just if you look at them, even con artist, shyster. These are words from a different era. Um, uh, I end up, you know, a lot of my book is on trying to figure out uh, what to call them that is more accurate and descriptive. And I land on Trump bot as the best term for it, not because of Donald Trump, even though he is an ace Trump bot. Um, <laughs> Trump means two things. It means mm-hmm. fake and it means beats everything else. Mm-hmm. And so I'm talking about people who robotically play fake Trump cards. Mm-hmm. That's what I think is going on with a-holes. And it becomes mm-hmm. just a habit. I don't know that they're, whether they love themselves like narcissists or whether they have no feelings, I don't, I, it's kind of irrelevant. The fact is it's a habit that works if people let them get away with it. Mm-hmm. It's trump So Yeah, and I think that that's a great name. I always actually uh, really liked that. Uh, like I thought it was so interesting how few, few people commented on the, the irony of Trump's name. Um, yeah. You know? well, they, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Charles Dickens couldn't pick a better name for it. And I actually, <laughs> the most interesting thing is, I, I had to, I ended up reading this philosopher's book in which he mentioned actually Trump means both things. It, I hadn't noticed. Obviously, we knew it meant beats all else, mm-hmm. but that it also means bullshit, as in Trump Dalle, the that art form that that fakes the eye, that deceives the eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, no, nah, it's interesting. Perfect name. 
Um, just before, uh, before we close up, I was just going to yes. tell you something really funny. So where I grew up, uh, there was two doctors in, in town that had these amazing names, very similar, like you said, with Charles Dickens. So the, uh, the one was a gynecologist named Dr. Poon and, oh. <laughs> and a dentist named Dr. Veneer. And I'm not even making that up. That was actually their <laughs> names. And I was so, I was so impressed. Um, like, and you always wonder, like, did they choose their career because of their name? Or, yes. uh, but uh, before before I say goodbye, is there anything else you wanted to add? Well, just um, uh, uh, just to follow up on that, my name is Sherman, and <laughs> I am a fallibilist. So no, apparently that didn't. I mean, no, I mean, sure, man, whatever. <laughs> I never even thought of that because I was yeah. thinking Sherman, you know. Sherman. But right. that totally makes. Sense. <laughs> yes. No. So Sherman's Guide to Uncertainty is is a <laughs> is a, a title I've thought of. <laughs> Oh, that's so good. Um, is there anything you want to say? Say goodbye to the audience. No, or? just uh, goodbye, audience, and uh, and and find me if if any of this is intriguing. I promise I won't uh, try to sell you anything. I got nothing to sell, um, but I but I've got uh, these kinds of ideas. If you want to follow them out, just look up Jeremy Sherman. Thank you so much for joining me. This was so much fun. I just Glad, uh, yeah, delight to be here with you and talk with you and and explore with you. Yeah, I just had the best time. And to my audience, I love you. Bye. 